Dear Father, please bring us close to the reality of who you are, and we pray that our time spent together just now may uh, bring us into a, a real sense of your presence and your friendship and your love with us on a daily basis. Amen. All right, I think I'm always a little over-optimistic about how much we can get through in, um, in our amount of time. So there's just so much to talk about here in Romans that I just couldn't skip over it and go on to Corinthians. So I think we're going to spend the rest of the time um, here going through Romans. And let me just, in two minutes, just summarize the first eight chapters of Romans, which really, uh, I think, should be taken as one big whole, the first eight chapters of Romans. And remember that Paul here so nicely summarizes what is the good news And he says, for in it, after saying, I'm not ashamed of the good news and all that, he says, for in it, the good news very clearly tells us what the good news, what does the good news reveal? In it, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. The good news tells us something about who God is. And ultimately, best demonstration, best revelation of who God is, is the life and the death of Jesus. Good news is about a person. It's about, uh, really, the character of God. And then he goes on to say, and that good news, that's what leads to trust. And if you're one to see God this way and you trust him, that's all that God asks. And I found it interesting here. We'll we'll talk about this um, on Saturday in Hebrews. But the good news is not something that there was no good news. And all of a sudden Jesus comes and we have good news. Uh, Revelation refers to it as the everlasting good news. It's always been good news. And this verse about the people that wandered in the desert for 40 years, Paul says, we see that those people did not enter into the place of rest because they did not have faith. Remember, faith, trust, believe, one Greek word, they didn't trust. For we have heard the good news just as they did. Those people in the desert heard the good news. Okay, that's kind of interesting. They heard the message, the good news, but it did them no good because when they heard it, they did not accept it with faith. And it's interesting. How did they hear the good news? Well, in many ways, God has revealed himself um, throughout the ages. And of course, remember the story, Moses, who said, show me the dazzling light of your presence. Show me your glory. And then what was the description? God comes along and we don't get a description of what he looks like. We get a description of his character. The Lord is kind, gracious, forgiving, not easily uh, angered. All right, so the good news was known, but notice it didn't stimulate trust in these people. And this is not just Paul's interpretation, but God says, the Lord said to Moses in Numbers, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me? Even though I perform so many miracles among them. So we can see what God has wanted from the very beginning is just that we would respond to who he is and that we would put our trust in him. That's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Paul just puts it together so well. And of course, once we've seen the revelation of who God is by his life on earth, that that should stimulate much more trust in us. All right, so after saying this is what the good news is about, God wants us to trust him for who he is. Then he goes on, and I won't read this, but to describe, all right, if you are going to reject that God is this way, let me tell you about God's anger and God's punishment. And then he goes on to say three times what God does in his anger and in his punishment. And he gives those people up. He gives them over, hands them over. Um, Again, not an arbitrary act, 
But the choice from God's perspective is if we per persist in rejecting, 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 his choice is either to manipulate, control, override our free will, or to give us the freedom to do what we want to do. And God respects our freedom. But notice what lies at the root about it. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God. So it is just very much always truth about God. That is the center. Who is God? And then can we put our trust in that kind of a God? And then he goes on to say what God wants. The real Jew is the person who's a Jew on the inside, that is, whose heart has been circumcised. And Paul's language here, what God wants is the law written on the heart, the law of love. God wants to change us from the inside, to change the way we think and act. And then he would summarize it. We read the whole passage in Romans 3, that at least eight times God says that all he wants, God puts people right through their faith, through their trust, in Jesus Christ. That's the essential uh, point that God's trying to get across. And then he says, we were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who's now made us God's friends. And so anytime we are describing the, the plan of salvation, and if we are making it sound like uh, one member of the Godhead was our enemy until the cross, and now he's our friend, no, God has always been our friend. It's we have been the ones who have been the problem. We've been God's enemy. God came to reveal his love, his trustworthiness, and now we go from becoming God's enemies against God to now we are God's friends. Okay, and I won't read this, but Romans 8 concludes with what's left to say. If God's for us, who can be against us? And a wonderful passage that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. All right, this is Paul's summary statement. Now, he moves on in chapter 9, and that's what I want to explain. But uh, at the risk of, um, for people who are coming for the first time, maybe this is risky to put something up like this. But this is just, I want to explain things, if I can, a little bit in a table, because, of course, many people read the first eight chapters of Roman and perhaps come to a different conclusion. Let me just contrast a couple different ways of, uh, of thinking about things. All right, now we can say Jesus came to pay a penalty and to thus assuage the wrath of the Father against sin. Or we can describe it this way. God came to reveal the truth about his character, thus restoring our trust and friendship. What message do we read in those first eight chapters of Romans? Or we can describe, as it often is, that the good news is that the penalty was paid and that ultimately the good news is about me. I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. The good news is about me, me. What was done for me? Or we can say that ultimately the good news is about God. And that that good news is so good that we are one to love and trust and friendship with God. Now we can describe the consequences this way. God will pour out his wrath on the sinner who does not accept the death of his son. Or it can be described this way. God will give his children the freedom to leave his side and to suffer natural consequences, which are horrible. Or we can say God primarily wants to cover us with something. Or we can describe it this way. God ultimately wants to change us from within, to change the way we think and act. Okay, so where do we fall along this, this line of thinking? Now, 
I don't want to come across as condemning or putting down one viewpoint. In fact, I think it is very likely or very possible that initially in, in our life of, of sin and so on that we come to see that it's wonderful that the penalty was paid and that we're one to God because of, of that great message. But as we, as we search more deeply, we read the Bible, we come to know God, we come to see, wow, God is wonderful. His character, this message about who he is, is incredible. So we may, we may change somewhat our thinking. We may initially be very happy with the thought, uh, boy, I don't want to go to hell. And we may be scared into a relationship with God. But as we spend more time, we come to know him better, we come to see that there never is a reason to be afraid of God. Perfect love casts out all fear, and there's no reason to be afraid. Okay, so, but the fear may initially attract and bring us to him. Okay, we may go from a position where we just hope to be shielded from his wrath, and we may eventually come to see, uh, again, there is no reason to be afraid of God. Okay, so the, the fear message is sometimes there, I think, because in our hardened state, oftentimes, just like with children, sometimes it, they respond to something that has to be a little more than just uh, soft, gentle words of love. Well, now we come to this in Romans 9. Now, this is, a, this is a difficult passage, and that's why I want to spend some time with it. After concluding that nothing can separate us from the love of God, all God wants is our love and our trust, Paul says this, I am speaking the truth. I belong to Christ and I do not lie. My conscience, ruled by the Holy Spirit, also assures me that I am not lying. He really means it. When I say how great is my sorrow, how endless the pain in my heart for my people, Jews, my own flesh and blood. For their sake, I could wish that I myself were under God's curse and separated from Christ. That's kind of interesting. What is God's curse? Separated from Christ. They are God's people. He made them his children and revealed his glory to them, his character. He made his covenants with them and gave them the law. They have the true worship. They have received God's promises. They are descended from the famous Hebrew ancestors. And Christ, as a human being, belongs to their race. Isn't that incredible? Okay, now, Paul is going to try desperately to reach these people who he's just said he would be willing to die for his people. How does he choose to do it? Well, some hard words. And he tells them, it is not by being children through physical descent that people become children of God. It is the children of the promise that are counted as heirs. And of course, this would not sit well. Uh, remember those people in uh, John chapter 8 who argued with, with Jesus, who said, we are the children of our father Abraham. Our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was the physical descent that was so important. And so Paul comes along and says, no, it's the children of the promise Okay, so this would perhaps not sit well, but he goes on talking about Rebecca and her children, um, Isaac and Jacob. And he says, even before they were born or had done anything good or bad, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Now we could read this and say, look, I mean, God just does what he wants to do. He's going to choose to have some people respond and other people he's going to choose 
not to respond. And what choice do we have if God would look at two babies and say, or even before they were born, this one I'm going to love, this one I'm going to hate? Is this exactly how we should read Paul's words here? Well, we know just from taking the Bible as a whole that that, that is not the attitude that God has. Just to point out a couple of examples in Amos, the Lord says, people of Israel, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. And notice how he deals, has dealt with the other nations. I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you out of Egypt. Okay, so we see God, I think, desperately working with everyone all over the world. Okay, this message, this could be made in so many other references, but in Isaiah, God says, turn to me now and be saved people all over the world. I'm the only God there is. So I think... Uh, we can't take the Bible as a whole and see that God arbitrarily decided to hate Esau. So what is the meaning here? Well, what about this? When Jesus quoted Isaiah, is this exactly how it was? The people that didn't respond to Jesus. He said, God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds so that their eyes would not see and their minds would not understand. And they would not turn to me, says God, for me to heal them. Did... God, as Jesus was giving his message, turned some people off arbitrarily. You're not going to see, you're not going to hear, you're not going to understand. I mean, this would not paint a very good picture of God if this is absolutely the way that it worked. Okay, how do we understand passages like this? Or Jesus coming back and saying, go away, I never knew you. Does he really not know those people? Well, let's read on. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may demonstrate my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. You will say to me then, to me then why does he still find fault? For who has ever resisted his will? But who indeed are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay, one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use. And of course, there have been people in Christianity who have looked at this, and especially this passage, and uh, come to the conclusion it's all predetermined. right? And uh, this free will, nope, God has pre-selected those people who uh, who will be his children. Well, let's again look at the example here of Pharaoh, what really happened with Pharaoh? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And let's read the passage in Exodus. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. And it's really interesting here. You know, we think about Moses, who was, uh, even when he died at 120, remember his eyes were still sharp intellect. And so he's writing this here. And you would think he you know, wouldn't even describe it consistently. First he says, their hearts were hard. And then he said, Pharaoh's, well, then he said, uh, the officials, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then he says, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then he says, God hardened his heart. All right, so which was it? And I know we've talked about this before, but um, I think 
the, the best illustration I've heard of this, uh, which, which we discussed some time ago, but uh, a lump of butter and a lump of clay. And you put them both in an oven and you turn the oven up and what happens? To the butter, it melts, the clay becomes hard. Same stimulus, the, the heat brought all of this on. And so God here comes to Pharaoh and he gives him evidence, 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 evidence. And Pharaoh rejected all of that evidence. He, he hardened his heart. But didn't God, in a sense, have a hand in it? He brought this on Pharaoh to decide. And Pharaoh uh, rejected all of that evidence. So God did it in the sense that here he brings this on Pharaoh, the, the decision. But yet Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. So it's true. Pharaoh hardened his heart, his heart was hard, and God hardened his heart. But God didn't override Pharaoh's free will to, uh, to make him do something that, uh, you know, that he didn't want to do. Okay, so trying to put all this together. Now, the last part of this, after talking about Pharaoh, just to talk about this, the, the lump of clay. Uh, you know, are we predetermined how, how we're going to respond to God? And uh, I'm not sure. I don't think we actually quoted this passage when we went through Ezekiel. But to me, this is almost the best passage to show, um, to, to counter this. And let me just read this through quickly in Ezekiel 18. This description here, it is the one who sins who will die. A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good and evil people will suffer for the evil they do. If someone evil stops sinning and keeps my laws, if he does what is right and good, he will not die. Notice a person who once was a rebel, who once was hard, and now that person changes his mind, good, he'll not die, he'll certainly live. All his sins will be forgiven and he will live because he did what is right. Do you think I enjoy seeing people, evil people die? No, I'd rather see them repent and live. Okay, now let's give an example on the other side. But if a righteous person stops doing good and starts doing all the evil, disgusting things that evil people do, will he go on living? No. None of the good he did will be remembered. He will die because of his unfaithfulness and sins. So notice, we are at every point free. This person was at one point righteous. Now they've decided to rebel and distrust against God. Um, so we have people here as this uh, once saved, always saved kind of thing. Uh, we would always be free to rebel against God. And it goes on. But you say, what the Lord does isn't right. Just, just like in uh, Romans. No, this isn't right. But listen to me, you Israelites. Do you think my way of doing things isn't right? It is your way that isn't right. When a righteous person stops doing good and starts doing evil and then dies, he dies because of the evil he has done. When someone evil stops sinning and does what is right and good, he saves his life. Notice people going back and forth, changing their mind. He realizes what he is doing and stops sinning. So he will certainly not die, but go on living. And you Israelites say, what the Lord does isn't right. You think my way isn't right, do you? It is your way that isn't right. Now I, the sovereign Lord, am telling you Israelites that I will judge each of you by what you have done. Turn away from all the evil you were doing and don't let your sin destroy you. And there it is again in so many places. The destructive agent is our rebellion, our distrust, and our sin. God is not the destructive agent. Don't let your sin destroy you. Give up all the evil you've been doing and get yourselves new minds and hearts. Again, a change from within, change of the way we're thinking and acting. Why do you Israelites want to die? 
Okay, so we, we counter these, these passages here in Romans, but again, what is the point that Paul is trying to make in saying, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and uh, I think this is the point he's trying to make. Paul then goes on to quote Hosea. This is what he says in the book of Hosea. The people who are not mine, the Gentiles, I will call my people. The nation that I did not love, of course he did love them, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. And I think Paul is contrasting here Jacob and Esau, Jews, Gentiles. And now there has been an incredible shift in human people, in human history, which is that the people who God did not love, that is the people who did not respond to God's love, now are responding. The people he did not love, now he loves. And what would be the, the almost natural contrast here? The people that I loved, they don't love me, and now I don't love them. Of course he does, right? And he goes on to say so many times here, just in the rest of the book of Romans, that God loves the Jews. He wants to win them back, okay? But it's the kind of the black and white strong contrast here is that everything is now turned around and a different group of people are responding to God. This, this phrase, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's called oriental hyperbole. It's a way of talking to make a, a strong contrast like this. All right, so I thought I'd quote the message here, which is always strong. Who in the world do you think you are to second guess God in this passage? And uh, I think what Paul is doing is after saying in Romans 1 through 8, God is love, God is good, this good news about God is what wins us to love and trust him. God will save every single person who trusts him. And now he turns to these people who are disagreeing, okay, these descendants of Abraham and saying, are you telling God he can't do things that way? Are you suggesting that this is not the way God should run his universe? Okay, and I think he is just strongly arguing that God is going to do things that way. If you want to know how he's going to do things, read the first eight chapters of Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 10, some more words to the Jewish people. My friends, how I wish with all my heart that my own people might be saved. How I pray to God for them. I can assure you that they are deeply devoted to God, but their devotion is not based on true knowledge. Again, what true knowledge? To know God is eternal life, to know what God is like. They've not known the way in which God puts people right with himself, which we just said is trust. And instead, they have tried to set up their own way. And so they did not submit themselves to God's way of putting people right. For Christ has brought the law to an end, so that everyone who believes, trusts, is put right with God. Now, what does this mean? Christ has brought the law to an end. What law is at an end? Adultery, stealing, killing, these are all okay? Or what, uh, what law is Paul talking about here? Maybe one of the Ten Commandments? Or what, what is he talking about here? Um, well, this is where it's always helpful if we get, come up with something difficult like this. Uh, of course, Jesus, in a sense, makes the law more difficult if we want to think about it that way. Then Jesus doesn't just say, don't commit adultery, don't even look at a woman in that way. And not only don't kill your neighbor, but don't hate them. So if we want to look at things just legalistically, Jesus comes along and says, I want much more than just obeying a list that's posted on a wall somewhere. 
And so I like here the Phillips translation of this. For Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes or trusts in him. So in other words, the way of getting right with God, at least that was popular in that time, was to get right with God by keeping the law. And if we look at the list on the wall and we go through and we haven't stolen, we haven't killed anyone today, and uh, um, we kept the Sabbath because it was Wednesday anyway, and we go through the list and uh, we go to bed feeling pretty good about ourselves. All right, That kind of mentality. We get right with God by keeping a list. Um, Christ is the end of that. It never was the way anyway, of course. But now Christ is the way because now we, again, respond to the good news. We trust God. That is the way that God puts people right with himself. It is the end of law as a way of getting right with God. And a little later on in Romans 12, again, I used the Phillips translation several times here, but I really like this passage. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship. And I like that so much that God wants us to decide for him with an intelligent, reasonable choice to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. And how many times have we read that God wants to do something to change the way we think, to change the way we act? So what does it mean specifically here to give our bodies as a living sacrifice? And I think Paul goes on to describe what it is like to give your body as a living sacrifice here in Romans 12. And he describes it this way. Let love be without any pretense. Or in other words, in, in other versions, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be sincere. Avoid what is evil. Stick to what is good. In brotherly love, let your feelings of deep affection for one another come to expression and regard others as more important than yourself. Now just let that one sink in for a minute. Regard others as more important than yourself. Can you imagine uh, living in a world where that was the way everyone else, their mindset was that way? In the service of the Lord, work not half-heartedly, but with conscientiousness and an eager spirit. Be joyful in hope, persevere in hardship, keep praying regularly, Share with any of God's holy people who are in need. Look for opportunities to be hospitable. It goes on. Ask God to bless those who persecute you. Yes, ask him to bless, not to curse. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who are weep. Have the same concern for everyone. Do not be proud, but accept humble duties. And here again, another shocker. Do not think of yourselves as wise. And I think that's, that's a wise statement. And actually, the, it's true in almost everything. You know, neurology, uh, as you learn more and more, and, and maybe, you know, I can draw up here the basal ganglia diagram for you, and it seems all impressive. And then I go to a conference with someone who really knows the basal ganglia, and uh, boy, I'm not very wise at all when it comes to, to things like that. So, um, but it's the same thing. We come closer and closer to God, and as we do, and it's a wonderful experience, we see... By contrast, you know what? We're not very wise. If someone has done you wrong, do not repay him with a wrong. Try to do what everyone considers to be good. Do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. 
Seems like Paul so often in his books concludes with the ideal. 1 Corinthians 13 and, and so many of these. This is the ideal. This is what it means to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, then there's always something challenging. Coming a few verses later. Don't take revenge, dear friends. Instead, let God's anger take care of it. How does God's anger take care of it? After all, Scripture says, I alone have the right to take revenge. I will pay back, says the Lord. Okay, how are we to be? But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. If you do this, you will make him feel guilty and ashamed. And as most versions say, you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil with good. Now, what does this mean? We have enemies, and God tells us, love them, pray for them, feed them, give them something to drink, pray for them, and heap burning coals of fire on their head. So do we heap burning coals of fire on their head. How does God treat his enemies? Well, it's always good when you come across something like this. This is a quote from the Bible. The scripture says, okay, so let's go back and let's see. Where does it say here that God will take revenge? We let God's revenge do it. Well, this is from Deuteronomy. Very, very hard passage. Remember, Moses is giving this speech, very end of his life, and he gives a very stern warning. Or he describes God's words this way. My anger, this is God, will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Okay, a few verses later on, this is what Paul quoted. The Lord will take revenge and punish them. The time will come when they will fall. The day of their doom is near. Okay, so we're reading through this passage. And um, usually, right in the midst of this kind of a talk, there is a verse of great clarity. And I think uh, here it is, right here in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 32. What is God actually doing? Well, they fail to see why they were defeated. They can't understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Here it is. The Lord, their God, had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And this is one of dozens of examples in the Old Testament. What does God do when he shoots all of his arrows, when he comes down in fury to punish? And it is there almost all the time. What does God do? He abandons, he gives them up. Where do you think Paul got Romans 1? Where God in his anger and his punishment, what does he do? He allows us the freedom to suffer the natural consequences. But notice, as we deviate further and further and further away from God, God does not make it easy. He gives us law, conscience, so many things that we have to choose to again and again go against, go against, go against. And as we go further and further, um, this is, I think, the description of, of God's anger. But notice that as God, in his anger and in his wrath, he will sometimes win people in that process. Notice the description in Isaiah 1. So now listen to what the Lord Almighty Israel's powerful God is saying. I will take revenge on you, my enemies, and you will cause me no more trouble I will take action against you. I will purify you the way metal is refined and I will remove all your iniquity. So as we are heaping burning coals of love and goodness on our enemies and we leave God to work out that process as he is, of course, our enemies are God's children, right? But we leave that up to God 
and God may actually win some of our enemies. And uh, hopefully we're not offended if God wins some of our enemies and they become God's friends. So notice here, God, in his revenge, he ends up actually uh, bringing some people to his side in that process. Okay, Paul comes along now to talk again about an interesting topic which he, he discussed in Romans 2. And he describes it this way, Welcome those who are weak in faith, but do not argue with them about their personal opinions. Some people's faith allows them to eat anything, but the person who is weak in faith eats only vegetables. Okay, so anyone who's a vegetarian here, um, are you weak in faith? Or what, is, what does Paul mean? The person who will eat anything is not to despise the one who doesn't, while the one who eats only vegetables is not to pass judgment on the one who will eat anything, for God has accepted that person. Who are you to judge the servants of someone else? And what Paul is saying here is, remember the idols are never, uh, the gods, false gods are never vegetarians. They always get meat, okay? And so the, the thought was, uh, boy, you don't want to eat something in the meat market that has been offered to an idol, which is meat, all right? And so some people, of course, had come to the conclusion that those gods don't really exist. They're not real. And so to eat something that was offered to an idol is meaningless. Idol is not real. I can go ahead and eat that thing. It doesn't matter. All right, but for some people, boy, I don't want to eat something that was offered to an idol. That might do something to me. So some people maybe eat only vegetables uh, for that reason. All right, but Paul's point has nothing to do with diet here. Paul's point is don't judge others. You eat only vegetables, don't judge other people. If you eat meat that was offered to an idol because you know it wasn't real anyway, don't judge the people who are afraid to eat only the vegetables. His point is don't judge others. And he goes on, it is their own master who will decide whether they succeed or fail. And they will succeed because the Lord is able to make them succeed. Okay, now he gives another illustration. Some people think that a certain day is more important than other days, while others think that all days are the same. We each should firmly make up our own minds. Those who think highly of a certain day do so in honor of the Lord. Those who will eat anything do so in honor of the Lord because they give thanks to God for the food. Those who refuse to eat certain things do so in the honor of the Lord, and they give thanks to God. So again, is the point here, is Paul making a point about the day of worship. No, his point is, don't judge others. If you think that a certain day is more important than another day, well, firmly make up your own mind. Or as other versions say, we should be fully persuaded in our own minds. The point is, we don't judge other people who think differently about a day of worship. The point is, don't judge others. The point is nothing whatsoever to do with a day of worship. And he comes to conclusion in this passage. So then let us stop judging one another. Okay, the point is we're free and we should each firmly make up our own minds. And some people have made up their minds about a certain day, perhaps being more important than another, but we don't judge others who don't see things the same way. That's the whole point. And this point about not judging others, this was Romans 2, uh, this comes through so many times in the Bible, and this has only recently for me come to be something that is uh, really important. Remember this passage in Romans 2. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. 
And this is absolutely true. You know, when you criticize someone else, it is almost invariably true that what you see in someone else, that character flaw that drives you crazy to the point of judging and criticizing, it is almost always a reflection of that same character flaw in yourself. So when you judge and condemn someone else for something, you really have just usually identified something in yourself that is the same problem. It's true, it takes one to know one. And Jesus, how many times did he talk about this? In uh, Matthew 7, the message translation, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging, and it absolutely does. It is uh, one of the most harmful things to your own character to judge and criticize someone else. Because what are you doing when you judge someone else? I shouldn't say you, because I am... am uh, uh, I've seen this so much of myself, but when you judge and criticize someone else, usually it is based on very little information. Uh, usually it is based on very little fact. You don't know anything really about the person's upbringing or what even went on with that person that day. But using that little information, you elevate yourself to a position of judge and to condemn and criticize uh, someone else. It is a very, very selfish and proud act because uh, you know you, you see someone, um, oh, I hate to admit this, but when I was a neurology uh, resident, there was a, a certain group of people in the neurology crowd who would very much judge and criticize others. In fact, the neurosurgery residents used to be called boneheads. All right, and so it was the, the, the thought was, well, they can't localize lesions. All they can do is operate. And so anytime there was an interaction with this other group, they were judged and condemned. And what was the purpose? hey, I feel pretty good because, look, I have more knowledge than they do. I'm really using their defeat and stepping on them to build myself up. A very, very dangerous thing to do. It's very destructive to self because now I've elevated my own self up to this point and I have to constantly feed self, feed self to keep my comfort level up here. And I will step on anyone else to keep myself up here. It is exactly the principle of Satan's kingdom, the survival of the fittest mentality. It's extremely destructive. The same passage in Luke 6, but it adds a little more detail. Again, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. Um, I like that. I mean, really, if, even if someone is doing something which on the surface looks bad, give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I was just thinking about this recently. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been to the Bagel Peddler in uh, Redlands, but we go all the time to get bagels and they accept cash only. And so I went there recently um, and to, didn't have any cash and just thinking a trip to the ATM, it's about 15 minutes to get there and back. And two doors down, there is a liquor store that has an ATM. So, um, okay, ran in real quick and got some cash. And, um, you know, someone about the age of all of you drove by in a car, and I didn't recognize the person, but I just thought at the time, you know, it doesn't look good to come out of a liquor store at 8 in the morning uh, to, get some, uh, to get some cash. Um, but, you know, you can see how this, this could uh, get around, and uh, maybe I'm telling the story to block any rumors, you know, that... Uh, uh, an ATM visit goes to Dr. Cole has a problem with alcohol, but uh, 
anyway, these kinds of things. I and mean, when you think about how this whole problem began in the first place, you know, a little uh, gossip, innuendo, the way Satan deceived Eve, what went on up in heaven before, these subtle misrepresentations and distortions are extremely harmful. Okay, now what is the ideal way of living then? So be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Um, and that's, but I, I think a rule should be you never talk about someone in a critical way unless they are present. Just a rule of life. Okay, instead, give away your life. You'll find life given back. But not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. So we can either choose to put people down our whole life or we can love them even if they happen to be our enemies. And that brings blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Very true. And some words here. These are uh, words of Gandhi here, but I, I really like them. Whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer him with love. And again, the answer is always is not self-effort at this because it is very hard, especially when someone in our intimate circle is judging and condemning us. Boy, that really roots deep down and it's very hard to overcome that. So the answer is, again, as always, to look to God, His goodness. And when we look to God, what do we see? Uh, we see ourselves as we condemn and do a million other things that are wrong and we see God not judging and condemning us. All right, That naturally then should overflow to the way we treat other people. And nobody can hurt me without my permission. So if someone is judging and condemning you, it is a choice to allow that to destroy you and to, again, come back with words of judging and condemnation to that people. So we want to break that circle of mentality uh, because it just you know, spreads hatred and so on. And so by loving others, we kind of break this circle of uh, the way this whole Earth's history has gone on. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about this verse next time in 1 Corinthians. But we read a horrible list like this. Evil people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's a bad list of sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, self-indulgent, sodomites, thieves, misers, drunkards, and there it is, slanders, gossips, people who judge others in a critical way. Um, it makes the list almost always of one of the worst things that we can do. And it's not just because God doesn't like it, it's because it destroys us when we do that. All right, well, the book of Romans concludes, and I don't know why I'm making a point of this, but it's interesting. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss, which is really what Paul said. But notice how different translators uh, describe this. Be sure to give each other a warm greeting. And, and the reason I bring this up is, you know, you're trying to translate the Bible, and in your culture, you do not kiss people. Uh, as a greeting, or in the King James, it's salute people with a holy kiss. And maybe some of you have heard the, the story about a lady who decided she was in every letter going to take Paul's words to the letter. And so she, in the back of church, tried to greet everyone with a holy kiss. And I don't know exactly what, what the holy kiss was like, but to fulfill <laughs> what Paul had said. Well, what is the meaning here? This is why different translators will say, greet each other in Christian love. I mean, that's the real meaning. And in, you know, in Germany or in France, maybe in France that fits with a holy kiss, but maybe not in other countries. And uh, finally, the, the Phillips 
version, you know, he's a very proper Englishman, describes it this way, holy embraces all around. Oh, no, that's the Message Bible. The Phillips is, give each other a hearty handshake all around for my sake. Okay, that's fine. I mean, it's, you get the meaning, don't we? A hearty handshake all around. So for someone in England, that may be the best way to describe it. All right, finally, the last verse here in Romans, which Paul summarizes what he's been saying through the whole book. Let us give glory to God. He is able to make you stand firm in your faith, in our trust. How does God make us stand firm in our trust? According to the good news I preach about Jesus Christ. So how it works is really quite simple. The good news about who God is, he's gracious, kind, he's just like Jesus in character. Do you like that God is that way? If you do, if you put your trust in a God who's like that, that's all God asks. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, again, we are come into amazement at uh, the goodness of who you are, and we do trust you. And uh, we know that if we stay in this loving and trusting relationship with you, that we can trust you as our heavenly physician to heal and to change us and to give us new patterns of thought and to make it natural for us even to love our enemies. Amen.